I'm also thankful as well for us uh, as a church that we've been able to walk through the Gospel of Mark together. Uh, this, has been, this has been a fun thing to be able to do the last couple of weeks, um, exploring a little bit more uh, of the topics that arise as we walk through. This week, we have kind of two huge overarching topics. I don't know if you read ahead and saw uh, in, in today's uh, sermon, but we have two huge topics that are, are going to be uh, brought up. One is whether or not there is a resurrection of the dead, an afterlife. Is there anything more than just this right here, right now? And then the second question uh, is going to be, what does God require of us? What does God demand of us? What is the greatest requirement, the greatest demand that God has upon us? And if we don't do this one thing, we will never please God, and we will only experience his judgment forever and ever and ever. So, Two massive things that Jesus is going to handle. Uh, and so I'm going to try to not make this sermon go longer than three hours or so. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it, it could. It could go that long. It won't. It won't. It won't. It won't. Um, but but uh, one of the things that, that we're going to be talking about specifically today, and, and a, thing, a theme that will keep coming up in today, is knowing the scriptures. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive in. So, Father, I do pray that you would help us uh, in this season. Uh, I, I pray that you would help us as we are walking through your word today. God, we are slow to understand your word. We are, we are those who are quick to sin. We are those who often question your word and think that we know better. We, we wonder if you really said that. Do, we, do you really mean that? We, we love to put up these barriers because we like to think that the way that we think about things and the way that we do things is right. And then we read things in your word that, that show that everything that we thought was true isn't. And, and we're left wondering, do we trust you or do we trust what we think? And so as we're walking into these scriptures today, I, I pray that you would help us to know you more. That we would love you as a result of our time together with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. And we ask that in Jesus' great name. Amen. All right, so uh, in this uh, first little bit of our text this morning, actually, uh, if we remember from last week, there were all these different religious groups that keep coming to Jesus and asking him questions. They just keep berating him with questions. And today, uh, that's exactly what happens again. That's how our text kind of begins. So our, our very first uh, thing that we're going to be thinking about is, is there an afterlife? Is there more than just this right here? And you might not know this, but in Jesus' day, the Jewish people who loved the scriptures differed on whether they thought this is all there is, or there's not, like, is there something to come? Is there not? Specifically, the Pharisees, remember the group we met last week, people that were like the, they loved the Bible uh, and they, they trusted it. Those people believe, yes, God's word does teach there is an afterlife. There is a resurrection of the dead. There is a, 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 a eternal blessings and, and eternal judgment. There are all these things yet to come. And there's another group called the Sadducees. They were sad, you see. Dad joke. Uh, they're sad because they don't believe there is an afterlife. They think this is all that there is. That'll help you remember it. Why are they sad? There's no afterlife. This is all there is. Right? They're sad, you see? And, and so uh, Mark tells us right at the very beginning of our scripture today, actually in Mark chapter 12, if you want to look in your Bibles with me, verse 18, it says, And Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. And, and they asked him, a question. So right away, Mark wants us to know these guys don't believe in any sort of resurrection. And if we didn't know anything else about the Sadducees, that would be enough to understand what we're about to walk through uh, in, our, in our scripture reading. But we do know a few more things about them. Uh, for example, uh, we as a church were walking through a, a Bible reading plan. Yesterday, uh, the 23rd, we were in Acts 
chapter 23. And in Acts chapter 23, we learn a bit more about who the Sadducees were. This is why it's a good thing to be in a Bible reading plan. All of a sudden, things come up, and you're like, oh, we just read that. And, and so this is really important. So if you remember, uh, for those of you who, who read it, if not, you can go home and read it later today. But Paul had been detained because of an uproar in Jerusalem. And he, he's brought in at, in his detainment, and there's this inquiry made. And the two Jewish groups that are there are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 23, verses 6 to 8. It says, now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, no resurrection of the dead, and the other part were Pharisees, there is a resurrection, there is an afterlife, he cried out in the councils, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Good move, Paul. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And, and you might wonder, well, how did these two groups of guys, who both claimed to love God's word, how did they come up with drastically different ideas on these really important topics? Like, is there a life to come? Are there angels or demons? How, how did they come up with different ideas on these things? And a, a huge reason is because the Pharisees and the Sadducees disagreed on what was God-authorized scripture, what it was and what it wasn't. The Sadducees, for example, they believe that God's word is only the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Nothing else. Those are the books, remember, that Moses penned. He, he wrote them down for Israel. So if it wasn't found there in those books, the Sadducees said, it's not God's word. Anything else extra, we don't believe it. Only these five books and only them alone. The Sadducees were also, we know from church history, they were the guys that were in charge of the temple. You could understand why. In Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, what are there a lot of? Temple requirements, festivals, procedures for sacrifices, all those kind of things. So these guys, they weren't a large group in Israel. They were a very small group, but they had a lot of power. They oversaw the temple, right? So, so they were a small minority kind of fringe group, but they were a very, very important one. And, and they were kind of the gatekeepers. So, so they did not believe. No afterlife, no angels, no spirits. Because they didn't see them taught in Genesis through Deuteronomy. So, so these are the men that approach Jesus. And they ask him a question. We see that in our next verse. It says in verse 19, teacher. It's interesting they call Jesus a teacher. They don't think he's a teacher. The teacher, Moses wrote for us. Remember, how big of a deal is Moses for them? Big deal. Moses wrote for us. That if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must marry or must take the widow and raise up an offspring for his brother. Basically, marry him and, and have a kid for his brother. And this seems very strange. We're going to pause right there. This seems strange. I, I remember when my, uh, when my brother and sister-in-law got married, I told her once, I'm like, hey, listen, Bible says if, you, if my brother dies, we got to get married. It's awkward. She's, she laughed. I was like, I'm just kidding. That's not, we're not doing that, right? These are, the, these are the kind of verses, though, that make people, when they read the Bible, they read it, and what do they say? The Bible is very sexist. The Bible is terrible. These kinds of things, how dare you believe? That's super patriarchal. I mean, right? isn't this why people hate the Bible, things like that? But, and, and the reason of that is because we don't understand the Bible. If we really understood the Bible, we would never read something like that and walk away thinking, God is whack. Instead, what we would rather see is the heart of this command, and it's one of the greatest gifts that God had given his people during this time. If you remember, in these times, there's no life insurance policies. 
right? So if, you're, if your husband were to die, no life insurance policy, you're left on your own defenseless. But remember as well, this is a very agricultural time, but lots of livestock, lots of things like that. So then you would have to be, have the responsibility of all of that, but, but not knowing how to do any of these things. You would be left penniless, almost with nothing. Not only that, during this time, there are roving groups of men that would come in, attack entire cities, and carry off all of the women and the children and all of the livestock. This is a dangerous time. This is is very dangerous, where if your husband died, you might just die or be taken advantage of by lots of people. In the Old Testament, God, the God of the Bible, our God, is referred to as the God of the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, the, the immigrant. The God who cares about the people that everyone else wants to take advantage of. And and in this command of God, we see God specifically taking care of these widow women. Ensuring that they are taken care of and provided for. That they have someone that takes care of them financially. That ensures no other man is able to come and abuse them physically or sexually or any other sort of a way. God God has given this as a way to protect women so that they could flourish, not be taken advantage of. And in this, Israel is drastically different than every other nation around them. Every other nation. The God of Israel is drastically different because he cares about these poor women who are walking through this great plight. So much so that God has this command that someone has to take care of them and provide for them. It's also really important because at this time, remember, for Israel, they had a promised land that was divvied up between the 12 tribes. And so to have your name blotted out meant that, that a, a portion of your tribe would go maybe to another tribe. And God wanted to ensure that the land he had given certain tribes of Israel stayed with certain tribes so that they wouldn't lose any of their inheritance as, a, as a, one of the sons of Israel. And so both for the taking care of these women and taking care of uh, the future generations, God makes this law. And, and, and this is a, a really interesting law as well. If someone did not do this law, what would happen is is that the woman, the widow woman, who was not being taken care of, she would come to the elders, all the the senior men of the city, the men of of well-respect and renown, and in front of all of them, she would take off the sandal of this man who would refuse to provide for her and take care of her, take off his sandal and spit in his face. And all of Israel would look at that man and just the immense shame that would come upon him because he would not take care of this widow woman who needs someone to take care of him would be huge. Like, it would be the, the worst. Like, if you think about, like, a shame, honor, culture, this would be the most shameful thing any man could possibly do is not take care of this poor widow woman who needs someone to provide for them. It was terrible. And so many men, if this happened, immediately they just, yep, here I am. How do I help? How do I help provide and take care of this woman? Because they didn't want to have this immense shame put upon them. And interestingly enough, this is exactly something that we see in Scripture. If you have not read the book of Ruth recently, it would be a great place for you to start reading maybe later this afternoon. In this story, Boaz is a man who takes care of a young girl named Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, when Ruth's husband dies. And through him providing and taking care of her, we have this lineage of King David and Jesus. This is a very, very important law, uh, not only for uh, God's people, but also to take care of people. So anyway, so they, that's how they begin the story. They say, they remind them, this is the command of Moses, something that's very important to them. So here's the story, and then it's followed by a, a, a very bizarre question. So it says, there were, there were seven brothers then. There were seven, knowing this law, there's seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, left no offspring. And the third, likewise. That's a lot of men this woman has gone through. <laughs> I'll keep dropping dead. And the seven left no offspring. She married every single brother. They all died. 
Last of all, she also died. So they say, in the resurrection, now, do they believe in the resurrection? Nope. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. So, so simply by asking this question, they're probably asking a question they've put before the Pharisees constantly. Their, their jab at the Pharisees is, you guys believe in a life to come? There are all of these unsolvable problems if everyone just keeps, if at, at, at the end, there's some life outside of this. If there's a resurrection from the dead, you're creating tons of problems. Look at this problem. How would you solve that, Pharisees? And the Pharisees would try to like, I don't know, but, uh, uh, and they would just make stuff up. Right, because that's all you could do. You're like, I don't know. You start making things up. And, and so they ask Jesus this question, knowing that it has worked before with the Pharisees and just waiting to see. This is their gotcha question. This is their trap for Jesus. They've laid it out a number of times for all the Pharisees, and they think, got it. This is on lock. Jesus, you look like a fool for believing in things like the afterlife and spirits and angels and all that stuff. And Jesus, we don't know how long... Jesus paused, but then he looks at them and he says, is this not the reason that you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. <laughs> Can you imagine? These guys have spent their entire lives studying, memorizing, knowing God's word. What does he say? Your problem is you don't know the scriptures. This was a slap in the face, a massive one, a massive one. And so let's think about that for a moment. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know what God teaches in his scriptures. I was thinking about this as I was reading one pastor earlier uh, this week. And in thinking about that, he took this and began thinking about how we also are, are guilty of this. Right? We think if we lived back in Jesus' day, we would have seen all that Jesus did and all these kind of things. And we would be the kind of people that would believe in Jesus. We would see everything that's happening. Like, well, we would have, we would have understood we would have gotten it. But he assures us, no, 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 we wouldn't have. We, we wouldn't have understood. Often I hear people say that. Like, if I lived back in Jesus today, I would have understood. You wouldn't have. Nobody did. In fact, Jesus is the only one that did. Everyone else had this shroud of blindness where they, they saw but didn't really understand. They heard they didn't really, they didn't really understand it. And I started thinking about all of the errors and things that we have in our lives, uh, both in our thoughts about God and his word. How many times have we been wrong about God's character? because we did not know his word. If you think about all the disagreements among Christians today on various things, is it not also because we do not know the word, what it says, what it means? We come to different uh, agreement points, but really it's because we don't know the word as fully as we ought to know. And, and I wonder if we will also hear this one day from Jesus, that the reason why we are wrong is because we do not know the word of God. Secondly, it says they didn't know the power of God. And, and again, I think we have this problem too as Christians. We don't know the power of God. We don't know the word of God. If we did this past week, for example, right? Lucent comes out, no change. Well, except for non-essential things, but and we can't gather, can't do all these things, and life is still sort of mitigated in this season. Immediately, in our hearts, there can come despair, sadness. And that's not, that's not a bad thing. But we should also remember in that moment the power of God. We should remember at the end of the day, who's in charge of what's happening in Manitoba? Roussan and Pallister? Nope. No, God has them in his hands, and he turns them wherever he wishes them to go. They don't make a decision apart from God unfolding his plans and purposes. Not, not a single one of them. He, he has ordained another few weeks of this. He has. 
maybe it's for our growth as his people. Think about maybe how you've grown in your faith as a result of having to step outside of the bounds of things you might normally do. Maybe it's increasing judgment on those who are leading poorly. Maybe it is for the salvation of someone. We, we, don't, we don't know. But what we do know is that there is someone who holds all things in the palm of his hand, and everything happens according to how he has ordained it. Is this not why we also, in the last year, have felt great depression, anxiety, despair? We don't remember the power of God. We don't remember the scriptures. As I started thinking about this week, I was greatly convicted in my own sin. And I think that's right. So, so he rebukes them. They don't know the scriptures, the power of God. And then Jesus corrects their thinking. Jesus looks at these men and he says, for when they rise from the dead. Isn't that fascinating? Not if. Right? They're wrong. Firstly, they don't know the scriptures or the power of God because there is a resurrection from the dead. There is an afterlife. They are wrong. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. What also do they not believe in? Angels. And he says, you're wrong. The resurrection, you're wrong. There are angels. So he corrects their thinking on, on those two things. But he also, did you hear what he also said? Sandwiched in there, that when they rise from the dead, there will be no marriage. There's no marriage in heaven, rather we will be like the angels in this regard, right? There, there is no wedding ceremony where God presides over one angel marrying another angel and all the angels rejoice. And then this, that, that doesn't happen. In the same way, we will be like them, not that we will become angels and have wings and all that kind of stuff. That's whack. That's not in the Bible. That's like those little figurines your grandma used to buy you. But that's, that's, not, that's not in the book, uh, right? That's not, that's not what happens. But we will be like them in the essence of there is no marriage there. And this idea that there is no marriage in the afterlife, in, in the world to come, is something that most Bible teachers and pastors skip over a lot. They pretend it just doesn't exist in the text. They try to work around it, explain it away, but, but there's no way to explain away Jesus' very clear words. But I think that we try to do this, especially here in North America, because we believe that marriage is forever and for eternity, forever and ever and ever. We have this idea that, that maybe in the afterlife, the world to come, that, that we'll be side by side with our spouse, like sipping some iced tea, looking at the beach, or sitting on some rocking chairs. I don't, I don't know, whatever, 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 however you think about that. But, but Jesus yet here says there is no marriage in heaven. And if we're honest, if, if we're thinking about that maybe for the first time, that seems incredibly unfair. Like you just got married. You just got, <laughs> you tell me there, we're just, we're not gonna be married? What? I just got this. It, it, and yet, there's no marriage. It almost seems cruel to us, doesn't it? Samantha grew up uh, in a Christian school, Christian home, going to Christian church. She had never heard that there's no marriage in heaven until she was 22. And we started walking through the scriptures together and reading a book called This Momentary Marriage, which if you haven't read by John Piper, it's phenomenal. And we started reading through that. She's like, there's no marriage in heaven? I'm like, no. I don't, what? My, my five-year-old, he doesn't want to get married because we were talking about this. And he's like, wait, wait, there's no marriage in heaven? I said, no, sorry, buddy, there, there's not. He's like, I don't want to get married then. I'm like, well, use your life for the gospel. Go, go, go do missions, uh, crazy, scary missions. Go, go, man. Like, that's great too, right? Some people are, uh, choose to not get married. Some, some people do choose to get married, but, but there's no marriage in, in heaven. But it almost does seem a little cruel, don't we? And I think it's because we don't understand rightly the purpose of marriage and why God has designed it. Rather, we, we like the Hallmark or Hollywood version of it. 
but rather God has designed marriage exceedingly better than, than Hollywood or Hallmark ever could make it. See, marriage has been given to us by God to demonstrate two major things to the world. The relationship of God the Father to God the Son and the relationship of God the Son to the church. Now, marriage is also given to us by God as a great gift for our joy. Uh, yes. But these are two of the massive things that our marriages are meant to do. They're intended to reflect there is a God who made us and who, who, how he serves us and how he lays down his life for the church. As husbands, this is our call to do. There's, there's nothing greater in this world to lay down your life for your spouse, to provide and protect an environment where she can flourish and love the things of God. There's nothing greater in this entire world. And in my marriage, there's nothing greater that I've seen uh, in and through it than, than my own sinfulness and my, my need for God's grace extended to me. Right? Who, who in this world do you sin against more than your spouse? Maybe your kids for a season, but then they leave the house. And you're still there with your spouse. Right? That'll be the person you sin against the most in this world and the person that extends you the most grace in this world. They're the person that knows you the best. And they're the one who extends grace constantly to you. What a gift that is to learn the gospel and to show it together year after year, decade after decade, if God gives us. See, marriage is a good gift. It is the best gift that God has ever given. But brothers and sisters, we must know the scriptures and the power of God and thank him and not take good gifts and turn them into gods that must be worshiped. We don't take our ideas and, and our loves and our passions for our spouses and then foist that upon God's word. We let God's word change what we believe to be true. And, and though I don't always understand it, I, I believe Jesus' words are true. I know I, he, it, in his assurances that there is somehow in the life to come, there is a deeper joy, a better love, a greater fulfillment that we will one day have that will make all of these great things that we have in marriage pale in comparison. And I don't understand it fully, but, but I know that it's, it's true. I, I, a guy this week, he was, I was reading, he was talking about if, if we could just use our imagination to think of one day in the world to come, the most glorious, wonderful, possible thing you could possibly imagine that would bring the, the greatest amount of joy, and you'd multiply that joy by a million you'll still not have begun to appreciate what God is preparing for us in that place. There is a joy that is far, far exceeding that which marriage in this world provides for us. And this is meant to be comforting for us. It's not to downgrade or downplay marriage. Marriage is a holy and wonderful thing. Marriage is a great, great gift. But it's to remind us that these marriages are only here for as long as God gives us. Right? Because in a moment, God could could take one or both of us away from this world. Our, our marriages are these momentary things meant to prepare and point us to something far greater. In the Sadducees, they're wrong. They don't know the scriptures. They don't know the power of God. They will rise from the dead and they will one day be like angels. So they ask this like silly question. Whose spouse will it be? Jesus says, no, 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 man. You, you're thinking too low. There is greater joy here that that this just doesn't compare to. It, it doesn't compare to, right? It's like, it's like trying to explain sex to a five-year-old. No computing, right? Zero. How much greater? It's far greater, far, far greater. And God promises that. This is in God's great designs. 
so, so in, that, in that day, there, there will be no, I, I got married or I lost my spouse or then I got remarried or maybe I got divorced and then I got remarried and who, whose spouse am I going to be? I don't know. Said, no, 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 no. It's so much greater, so much greater. These are a shadow of the things that are yet to come. So Jesus answers that way. And then verses 26 to 27, he then takes them to the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. Remember, Moses is their boy. They say, we love Moses. We know all of his words. And he explains how resurrection is actually found inside of Moses' words, inside of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Let's read together. He says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And I love this because I can only imagine these Sadducees, these very learned men who have memorized large portions of the books of Moses and have defended for generations that there is no teaching of the resurrection found in them whatsoever at all. They are deeply perplexed. Jesus opens up Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. The appearance of God to Moses in the burning bush where God introduces himself. says, I am the God of Abraham and the others. Notice here, God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and of Isaac. There's no I was, there's I am the God of them. Present, continual presence. And these guys have, have, have never had anyone use their own scriptures in such a forceful way. Immediately it causes them to question everything that they held to be true. Maybe they did not know the scriptures as well as they thought. Maybe they didn't know the power of God like they thought. Maybe there is an afterlife after all. And we must also remember that for us as Christians, that Jesus is having this conversation on a Wednesday, the Wednesday before he's going to die, right? This is on Wednesday. He's going to die on Friday. What's going to happen on Sunday? Resurrection from the dead. So these guys that say there's no resurrection, Jesus is going to come back on Sunday and be like, what's up, everybody? Right? Like, like this, is, this is coming. Not only that, who has already been raised from the dead that everyone has gone to see over in Bethany? Lazarus. <laughs> Lazarus is walking around as a testimony of like, there is a resurrection. Sadducees are like, I hate that guy, right? You're ruining my shtick that there's no resurrection, right? Jesus is going to raise from the dead. Not only that, Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 to 53, say that on the day when Jesus was raised from the dead, there will also be on that day many other saints who had died that would be raised from the dead and walk around Jerusalem. Can you imagine if you're a Sadducee on that day too, right? Like, what do you do? So whether they believed in it or not, they were about to experience the resurrection of the dead. They would see the dead rise, something they claimed was impossible. But what about us? What about us, you might be thinking? What will our experience be like when we die? I mean, what will happen? Like, if we die before Jesus comes back, what will happen to us? Jesus explains to us the thief on the cross. You remember that that, that thief that day, where would he be with Jesus? be in paradise with him. So although Jesus' body is left here on the earth, when he died, where does his soul go? Paradise. This is where he goes. When he, on Sunday, there, his, his soul will reunite with his body, right? There will be a resurrection of his earthly body, and we're assured that, that his resurrection is kind of a, a foretaste, an appetizer of what will happen to us. So one day, if we die before Jesus comes back, our bodies will be laid in the ground, and our souls will be with him in paradise. We don't know where this is. And then there's going to be a day coming where our souls will be reunited with our bodies, and we'll have brand new bodies that will look like ours, but they'll be very different. 
We see that also in Jesus, right? He had a body, a walking around body. They didn't look at him and he didn't look like an alien or like some, like, you know, some sort of like spaceship thing. He had a body that he walked around in. Not only that, what did Jesus have in his side? A pierced side. He had hands that are marked and bruised. Feet as well, from where the nails were. And one day, there is coming a day where the souls are souls and those that we have lost, where they will be reunited with their bodies. We'll put on these new imperishable ones. And our hope is that this life is not all that there is. There is a coming kingdom, a coming king, blessing and reward for those who have confessed with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that God raised them from the dead. We will be saved. Saved from facing the judgment that we deserve to pay because Jesus has stood condemned in our place. He took in his body all the punishment for us that we deserve to pay so that we don't have to pay any of it. He has paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. And all those who, who bend the knee now, who now in this life, those who bend their knee, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, on that day when he comes, we will enter into his eternal kingdom with joy. Immeasurable, matchless, unending, superior joy. Joy that is better than wine and music and travel and vacations and sex and kids and monetary inheritances or anything else. There is an all-surpassing, never-ending God-satisfying joy to be had. That is what is on the table as we pass from this life into the next one. By faith in Jesus, we enter into that joy and we have it forever and ever and ever. But it's, but it's important to note as well that, that we who trust in Christ will not be the only ones who are reunited, have our souls reunited with new imperishable bodies. It's important to note that those who do not profess with their lips or believe in their heart here in in this life, they will also be resurrected from the dead. Their souls will also be reunited with their bodies. And they will have brand new bodies that are outfitted to to exist in an eternity of God's judgment. Where they will, for eternity, face the fires of God's judgment against their sin. And it will never be extinguished. Friends, this is a place of great weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a place of great darkness and great despair. Friends, this is the place where we deserve to go. We deserve to face this judgment of God forever and ever. But, but we can be saved from that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. And so the call from us as we're thinking through that is to examine our hearts. If he came today and we were given a new body, an eternal one, an imperishable one, and you were headed either to unending joy or unending judgment, where would you be going? If you're honest with yourself and you know that it would be judgment, then you can take heart and come today and you can believe upon Jesus. You can believe that he died in your place. And you can turn from your sin. You can trust in him as your God and your king and your savior. And you will be saved. Just as I've been. This is what happened in my heart. This is what can happen in your heart. Because would you? Would you come? And then our text continues after dealing with these hostile questions from the scribes and chief priests and elders and Pharisees and Sadducees. There's a young man there, a scribe. And he sees how Jesus has responded to all these questions. And he ventures to ask Jesus a question as well. He's not attacking Jesus. We don't have any reason to think that from the text. But 
comes as well and asks a question. And the scribes, they were experts in the biblical interpretation. They interpreted the Bible and explained it, teased it out. They knew all the intricacies of Scripture. They, they loved God's Word. He comes to Jesus as well, and he asks this question. Which commandment is the most important of all? Which one is the most important? If, if there's one thing that God commands that we must do, what is the thing that we must do? There are, at this time, over 600 laws in Israel. 600 and he's like, what must I do? If I'm, what, is the, what is the great thing that God commands so I can make sure that I do it, right? So I can have eternal life, so I can be reconciled to God. What must I do? And Jesus quotes to him from Deuteronomy chapter six. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and with all your strength. And Jesus adds that here, that all your strength. He doesn't in the other gospels, but in this one, Mark records that he has all your strength. Either way, all of these things. This is the great commandment. This is the greatest requirement and demand of God. If we don't do this one thing, we will not please God ever. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Notice something, though, with me in this. That the greatest command of God is not something that we do. I, I, was, I was brought up in a religious home. There was a lot of things that we had to do. There's a lot of doing. If you don't do these things, he doesn't come up with do these things. That's not his command here. His command is not doing. His command is delighting. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't, he doesn't give him a laundry list of things he must do. If you do this and this and this and this, then great. No, no, no. It's not doing, it's delighting. He goes after the man's heart. The interesting thing about God is he cares more about our affections, more about our passions, our loves, and our preferences. If we would please him, we must love him. And this is not what the scribe is expecting at all. They have all of these laws. He wants to know what he must do. And here Jesus blows him away. But let him know, God doesn't care so much about his doing as he does his delighting. God wants this man to delight in him, to love God with all that he is. And it's, it's an interesting answer because we as people, we have this condition which makes us falsely believe that God cares more about our doing, our behavior, than he does what's going on in our hearts. That's not true. Satan himself could do all of the things of the law. But is his heart loving God? No. This was what was happening with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. This is why Jesus says, in all of your doing, all of your love of the scriptures, you're missing me. You're not seeing me in it. You are, he says, not of your father Abraham. You are of your true father, Satan. They think that they're worshiping God and they're not. Friends, we might think that God is maybe happy with us or angry with us because we do or don't do certain things. Things happen to us and maybe we wonder if it's because we displeased God. We didn't do enough, maybe. Maybe God kind of works like karma, right? We might wonder what we need to do to get God to love us or bless us or protect us or keep us from getting cancer or the Rona, right? Just tell me, what do I need to do? What does God demand of me? But, but friends, God is not so concerned about what you do, but rather what you delight in what you love. And if your love is in the right place, then doing overflows out of that. I, I think about that, for example, in regards to my relationship with Samantha. My love for her has changed everything about me. Everything, absolutely everything. 
what I eat, where I go, how I spend my time, my hopes and dreams of the future, right? Love for a woman changes everything about you. Amen? Yes. Amen. Everything. It changes everything about you, right? Everything, right? Like, for example, I'm not on Tinder. Why? I'm a man in love. Why would I be on Tinder? I wouldn't be on Tinder anyway, but, but, but I, I'm a man in love. I don't need Tinder. Pornography, why is that not a thing in my heart? Because I am a man in love with a woman. And that has no place because my love shapes my actions. Friends, this is what God requires of us. He does not require sacrifices or religiously motivated actions. He doesn't want you to do all these things. God wants your affections. He wants your heart. He wants your preferences. The greatest command is a command to love God demands that we love him supremely above everyone else. He demands our emotions, our passions, everything. And so where does this love come from? How do we cultivate this love? What do we have to do in order to feel and get this love? That's doing. You can't do anything. This is the mystery of God. This is a profound mystery. Doing things doesn't make love for them happen. You ever had a job you hated? You kept working and working, and you could did overtime. Does that make you love your job more? No. Same thing about God. You can't do enough things to love God more. That's not how our loves and passions work. See, this is a profound mystery. Love of God, love for God, is a gift that God gives to us. See, love must be placed in our hearts by God the Spirit if we're ever to love God as he demands us to. See, God demands us, you must love me. And he's the only one that can produce that in our hearts. We, 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 can't, we can't produce that on our own. It's impossible. If we are ever to fulfill this great commandment of God, it will only be as God gives it to us as a gift. It's a gift. And, and we see that gift overflow in four ways. We see it firstly with our heart. This is to come from the very root of our being. It's an affection that surpasses every other affection. Secondly, we see it with our soul, meaning that our love for God ought not to be lukewarm. It is a blazing fire consuming us. Thirdly, we see it in our strength. Our love of God ought not to be weak but strong. And then fourthly, with our mind, to love him with the fullness of our understanding. We've been given a rational mind to study and memorize and learn things, and we should. We, we should. You might have heard some people say, well, I don't like to study things like theology or things about God because when you study things like that, people just get divided and they just, they don't want to be friends anymore because theology just separates people. But friends, the great error in that is assuming that your love of God and knowing God greater, that that, that is going to divide this in ways that are less beneficial and lovely. See, we're often so worried about this, people, one another, that we don't want to know and love the things of God because we think maybe it'll, it'll ruin this. Friends, it is a love of this, not a love of God that motivates us. If our, if our response is we, we, we don't want to learn about God because it might divide me from other people, Friends, there is a joy to be had and a God's to be known that is far greater than anything in this world. And you're saying, no, I don't, I don't care. I'd rather just have friends with these people that I would disagree with if I actually learned things about God. That makes no sense, right? There, there's other people that say, no, I just want God to be a mystery. I just, I just love the mystery of God. I, I don't need to study and learn things. It's just a mystery. I love it. 
That also makes no sense. How do you worship and love someone that you don't know? That doesn't make any sense. Not only that, I only need to look at my five-year-old. My five-year-old loves dinosaurs. You guys, it is a love in his heart, and it overflows. He loves dinosaurs. He brings a dinosaur homebook every single Wednesday from school, every single one. And he loves to just learn all the facts and things. He loves it, loves it. Watches TV shows about dinosaurs, loves the history of dinosaurs, draws dinosaurs. Dinosaurs is his jam. When he learns more about dinosaurs, does that ruin the mystery? No. It increases it. It makes him think about it more. Dinosaurs become greater in his mind. He loves them more as he studies them. Why do we not think that that's true about God? I've been a Christian for a long time. I've been pastoring for almost 16 years. I've been preaching for 18. The things that I know about God now don't make him less mysterious to me. It it doesn't ruin it. It, It's greater. It's not less than. I I don't love him. I didn't love him more as a a seven-year-old when I first became a Christian than I do now. I love him now way more. Think about it in, in another way. Think about your spouse. You love them more today than you loved them when you first married them. It's greater. It's greater. You love them now more today than when you first met them. It's greater. Friends, we are called to love God with our minds. And there are many things in today that can distract us from the love of God. So many distractions. So, so many. But it's also never been easier to fill our minds with the things of God. Audiobooks, podcasts, books, word studies, all of these things are free online. It's never been easier, but it's also never been harder. And we need to be those who love God with our minds. So so we're called to love God in all of these ways, heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment, the demands of God. So we must do them. So go and do them. Good luck. (laughs) Here's the thing with this. We talked about this a moment ago. Love for God can only be placed in our hearts by God. And they must overflow. And God is the only one that can produce this overflow in our hearts as well. If we're honest with ourselves, this list right here is impossible to do. If this is the great command, this is the measuring standard, then we are all hopeless. None of us will ever love God with all of our heart and all of our soul, all of our strength and all of our mind constantly, all the time. Not a single one of us. Not a single one of us. One godly pastor I was reading this past week, he said, I have never kept the great commandment for even five minutes of my life. Never. He says, I have never loved God with All of my heart, my soul has never overflowed with affection for God constantly. My mind has been lazy with respect to understanding God's word. I'm often far more interested in learning the things of this world. He said, finally, I've used only a portion of my strength and my affection for God. And were it not for Jesus, I would utterly perish because I have not done any of these things. And that is true for me, and it's true for you as well. We could never rightfully do these things on our own. God commands this is what we must do if we would have a right relationship with him. But friends, we cannot do it, which forces us to think about the one who has for us in our place. See, just as Jesus died in our place, he also lived a life of complete obedience in our place. See, Jesus is the only one that can do the great commandment. He's the only one that can love the Lord as God with all of his heart and soul and strength and mind. He's the only one. And the good news is that he has lived the life of obedience that we have been called to live. See, Jesus calls us to this standard that we could never achieve, and then he he does it all in our place. And rather than condemning us and making us spin out of control in despair, these demands of Jesus make us thankful for him. And the more that we think about how God has so greatly loved us in Jesus, do you know what is produced in our hearts by the Spirit? A love for God. 
it, it produces strangely a love for God, a thankfulness that God would see us in our plight, that he commands us that we must do things, and yet we fall short, and how Christ came and fulfilled them for us. And then, and then he suffered and died in our place. This produces thankfulness and love of God in our hearts strangely, and then it, it changes everything about us. And though the scribe didn't ask for it, Jesus then gives a second great commandment. He says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And this commandment to love our neighbor is one of the most misunderstood phrases in Christianity today, especially in light of this pandemic. Some Bible teachers and pastors, they will incorrectly tell you that loving our neighbors means that we stay away from them. Just stay away. That's how you love them. If we loved our neighbors, churches wouldn't gather physically. If we loved our neighbors, we would get a vaccine. If we loved our neighbors, we would wear a mask. If we loved our neighbors, they just keep giving you laundry lists of things that you must do if you really loved neighbors like they did. See who the standard is there? If you loved your neighbors like me, you'd honor Jesus and what he says. But this is... Is that what Jesus says? Is, is this basically some treat others as you would yourself? Is this the golden rule? So Jesus says, God cares greatest and most about your love. Do you love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And then, do you wear a mask? Good. Is, is that what Jesus means? Is that the fulfillment of loving our neighbors as Jesus is saying? I, I don't think so. I think it's way more profound. I think those are just simplistic answers. See, love your neighbor as yourself is a radical command by Jesus. It cuts to the root of our sinfulness and our pride, and it exposes it. How much do you love yourself? A lot. You feed yourself in winter. You clothe yourself, right? Like daylight today, clothe yourself because it's cold. You should love your neighbor as you love yourself. See, a love for God is, is, is crucial in this. And this, it exposes our sinfulness and our desires. Here's what our desires are, naturally, from birth and by nature. Our desires are to be happy apart from God. All of us. We all want to be happy apart from God. Not only that, we all want uh, to be happy apart from the happiness of others in God. Naturally, we don't think about our own happiness in God and the happiness of others in God. And yet what Jesus is saying here is a love for others, that you should love them as you love for yourself, is that you should have, by grace and by God's design, this love of God flows up in your heart. You should love others, love others, love your neighbors as yourself. You should care about the happiness of others in God. This is what our goal is. This is what the goal of Jesus is in this. We should want them to love God. We should be willing to take the gospel to them. We should care in the same way that we care about our own souls. And here we are. In the same way that we read our Bibles and we do these things. Same that we care about ourselves. Do we think about, do we care about our neighbors loving the things of God? Do we care about them loving the things of God? Or do we just care about ourselves loving the things of God? See, love cannot be just contained. It needs to be expressed. We should want our neighbors to know the love of God. We should take the gospel to them. We should not be monks 
hiding away and enjoying the things of God in our warm homes while our neighbors are sitting under the judgment of God. They are expectant of nothing else than to die and face an eternity of facing God's judgment. And you and I know what can save them. We know the good news of Jesus. They have a much greater enemy out there than the coronavirus. They have their own sin that is gonna come upon them and send them into, into an eternity of facing God's judgment. Friends, this is bleak. They are expectant of nothing else than that. And we know the truth of God. We have had the love of God placed into our hearts by God. And we are called to love them as we would love ourselves. We are called to care about their happiness in God. We're not to just care if they stay safe while their souls are actually in peril. We are not to remain quiet and safe and secure in our homes away from them thinking that we are loving them, but in reality, we're just loving ourselves. We wouldn't want to risk their safety in sharing our lives in the gospel with them, and so we refrain. We take the easy way out. We are, after all, living in a pandemic. Staying safe is of utmost importance. Friends, we don't understand the scriptures or the power of God if we believe that to be true. We have not been called to preserve our lives, but to lay them down for the sake of loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And this includes taking the gospel to the nations as well, even incredibly dangerous ones at great cost to ourselves. We are called to lay down our lives, to model our Savior King so that they might be happy in him. Do we love people like that? Do we think about their happiness in God as much as we think about our own happiness in God? Or are we content to just care about our own happiness in God and, well, they're fine? Friends, they're not fine. They're not fine. This is the whole point of this, is they're not fine apart from this. We must actively love them. We must care about them more than we care about our own safety. There is a danger out there, and it's coming quickly. Do we care about them enough to tell them about it? To the old poem, only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Brothers and sisters, do we care enough about their happiness in God? Is that a concern for us? Do we think about that? And even if we are trying to strive to live by the mandates and all those things, are we doing what we can do? Are we going on walks with neighbors who are far from Jesus? Do we try to share our lives and the good news of Jesus with them? Are we doing what we are able? Or are we held up in our homes out of some kind of fear that that somehow we will shorten our lives if we dare share the good news of Jesus with those who are far from him? As if we could shorten our days. We, we can't. All, right, all of our days are written in this book from before the foundations of the world. We cannot shorten them. We cannot hasten them. Not only that, but have we also forgotten that it is far better to be with him in paradise than to be here? I feel like we have. If we're so worried about staying safe, preserve your life, the call of Christ is lose your life. Die so that others might know him. There could be nothing more polar opposite than, than this. See, the good news was so great that Jesus left the glories of heaven, came in, entered into human existence, and then died on a Roman cross so that you could be welcomed before God. The goal is not staying safe, my friends. This is not our goal as Christians, and it never has been. 
We've been called to follow his example and how we give our lives to others that they might be happy in him. See, this goes much further than the silly platitudes. Stay safe. Be safe. There's a mission that God has given us to do. Do we, do we care about them being happy in God? Do we really think about that that often? And if not, maybe we should. I was greatly convicted in thinking about that this week. So I mean, it's greater, much greater than our friends on the internet would tell us. It's much greater. It's more all-encompassing. And it really shows my own sinfulness that I have been neglectful of him. In the last few verses of today, the scribe agrees with Jesus, and Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Notice he doesn't say you're in the kingdom of God, but you're not far from it. You're beginning to see, you're beginning to understand what the kingdom is all about. But the scribe would need to be born again. So as we close, let's strive this week to live our lives in such a way that our neighbors, our little, literal ones, and then those that we meet will be able to see and savor the good news of Jesus. Let us be about our Father's business. Firstly, loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then secondly, loving others, caring about their happiness in God as well. Let's pray. So God, we are thankful for all that you have given us. Uh, we're thankful for your word that, that does uh, come, come to us. And oof, I, I felt a lot this week confront me and convict me of my own sin. I pray that you would continue to make us a people that are faithful and that love you. And uh, I, I pray that you would continue to give us opportunities to share our lives and the good news of Jesus with those that are far from you. Help us, we pray, and uh, give us grace as we are doing that. Pray that you would produce a love in us for you that would be consuming. And I pray as well that you would give us a love for our neighbors, that we would care about their eternal souls just as much as we care about our own. And that we would leverage our lives that they may know the good news of Jesus, which has saved us. Make us a bold people. Help us to remember that this life is but a blip. And that your kingdom is coming. And only what is done for Christ shall last. Forgive us, we pray, and encourage us and equip us by your spirit to live out this call. For we know in our own flesh and our own ability, we cannot do any of these things. So we trust you and we love you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.